1: Not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Not long ago, when people were deciding whether to attend the church that I'm a pastor at, They would ask questions about our ministry, like what we offered for kids or students, or they would ask questions about our theological beliefs. What did we believe about baptism or the Bible? I don't get those kind of questions much anymore. Now people wanna know what we think about Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or vaccines or masks. In other words, they don't ask about biblical issues as much as cultural issues. Everyone knows the culture is fracturing, but so is the church. People are more likely to choose churches in which the pastors share their political and cultural beliefs. That's why I wanted to talk to Brian Zond. He's doing something not many other pastors are able to pull off. He's what I would call a never-Trump pastor, and he's leading a church smack dab in the middle of Trump country. He's a committed pacifist leading a church in a place that sends a lot of kids to the military. He's committed to flying the Christian flag above the American flag. He loves his country, but he doesn't shy away from criticizing it. Brian and his wife, Perry, started Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1981, and he hasn't ever left. He's written numerous books. My favorite is Postcards from Babylon. I'm curious to figure out how he's keeping Christians unified in our divided world. Brian Zahn, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thank you, Keith. Good to be here. Hey, I've been reading your books and following you on Twitter for several years now. My favorite is Postcards from Babylon, but I know you've written several more than that. But I'm not sure that our listeners are going to be as familiar with you as I am. And so as a way to kind of introduce you... I want you to describe where you live, where the church you pastor is, what the people are like. So you're located in St. Joseph, Missouri, which is about 30 miles north of Kansas City. If you go to the Wikipedia page of St. Joseph, you'll probably find that it is the birthplace of Eminem. And the slogan there is where the Pony Express started and Jesse James ended. But we want to know more about it than that. I think it'll give us some insight as we talk further. What's St. Joseph like?
0: Well, I don't know. We're a small Midwest city, a little under 100,000, probably 100,000 right around here. It's pretty conservative. Yeah. I suppose I would say.
1: So like say in the presidential elections, it votes Republican?
0: Yeah, it does now. I mean, it didn't used to if you go back far enough, but things have sort of changed. I think the culture wars have landed in St. Joseph and driven people towards a more Republican way of voting. Is it a patriotic part of the country? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, sure. I mean, I have a good friend that he's a musician and he listens to my sermons and podcasts and stuff. And he texts me one day. He says, BZ, if you were in Boston, you'd be edgy. How do you get away with this in St. Joseph,
1: Missouri? (laughs) And I said, well, who says I'm getting away with it? I want to talk about that in a moment. I think your friend has some of the same questions that I do. I knew that's what you're getting at. That's why I told that. Is St. Joseph a working class
0: town? Oh, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Hacking houses and that sort of thing,
1: you know. Those are the big businesses in town or manufacturing?
0: Yeah. There's some other higher tech industries, but no, packing house. And that's the feel you should have.
1: And what about the racial makeup? Is it a diverse area or not so much?
0: Uh, You know, I don't have the actual demographics off the top of my head, but it's pretty white. Yeah. I would say it's about 10%, probably African-American, maybe a
1: little more about that, maybe Latino. So, you know, it's probably close to 80% white. It sounds like, if I have it right, and I've never been to St. Joseph, but I am also located in the Midwest, you are ministering, pastoring a church for a number of years in a smaller, you know, 100,000 Midwest town that is primarily working class, primarily white, very patriotic, believes in their country, loves their country, and is pretty conservative politically, at least over the last number of years. It has what people might call Trump country. My guess is that when Trump was running. You saw a lot of Make America Great Again hats, signs, and everything like that. Do I have it pretty accurate? Nailed it, Keith. You
0: absolutely nailed it. (laughs) You have located where I pastor and have done so for 40 years in one church.
1: So now let's do kind of a quick overview of some of your views. Again, introducing you to the audience, I want to just maybe get your kind of relatively quick takes on some of your perspectives. So what do you think about the church when it comes to patriotism and nationalism? What's your take on how the church has engaged those issues?
0: If by patriotism, we simply mean pride of place and responsible citizenship, Then it's pretty innocuous, you know, probably even a good thing. If by patriotism, though, we mean make America great in juxtaposition to other nations, if we mean an uncritical support of our nation, regardless of what justice seems to reveal, then it becomes problematic. Nationalism is just bad. Our baptism should cancel out the possibility. Of nationalism. I mean, look, I'm an American. I have an American passport. I travel the world. I'm glad to be an American as opposed to some other places where I could live. But I know of plenty of other lovely places to live in the world, too. But I regard my national citizenship as what we call in philosophy an accidental. It is not an integral part of my being. It's just, okay, I landed here. What is integral to my being is my baptismal identity that I truly belong to the kingdom of the heavens where Jesus Christ is Lord. As Paul says, our citizenship is from the heavens. And so, yes, I have a blue passport that says United States of America because I need it. You know, I'm kind of like Paul, I think. You know, Paul was very clear that he was an ambassador for Christ, that he was a citizen of the kingdom of the heavens. And yet, when it was advantageous, he would point out his Roman citizenship. So that's kind of how I approach it. I just
1: hold it loosely.
0: there's a whole lot more I can say, but I'll just see where you want to take us, Keith.
1: Sure, I get it. You love your country. You're glad to be a citizen. I do, actually. But you want to make sure that your loyalty to Jesus is far more important than your loyalty as an American citizen. And you wrote a Dear John letter that we're going to come back to here in a few moments, kind of a hard letter to your nation, because you don't want to follow the American way as opposed to the Jesus way or where it contradicts the Jesus way. So let me ask you about American wars. My take from reading your books are that you feel like maybe America has tried to become too imperialistic. An empire has gotten themselves into unnecessary wars. Is that an accurate take? Yes, I could probably state it stronger. Go for it. I love the way you write, so don't hold back.
0: Well, what is a necessary war? for the nation may be irrelevant to those of us who belong to the kingdom of Christ. And by the way, I wasn't always this way. This is a position I have arrived at over the last probably 18 years or so, that the waging of war is incompatible with following Christ. And that may sound outlandish. That may sound ridiculous. That may sound like some sort of lunatic radical fringe. Well, maybe But it was also the almost universal position of the church for the first 300 years. I mean, you read the church fathers, they are consistent that Christians take up the cross in imitation of Christ, and therefore they cannot lay hold of the sword. And so I understand that World War II is an ethical dilemma. I get that, and I'm willing to have that discussion. Nevertheless, I do still arrive at a consistent peace position because I think that's what we're called to do as we follow the Lamb. But all these other wars, I mean, what does that have to do with the kingdom of Christ?
1: That's good. So we're trying to introduce you to people that don't know you and just give them a glimpse as to the kinds of things that you have been learning, growing in, writing books about, teaching a congregation where you live for 40 years, which is remarkable and worthy of respect in and of itself. Let's jump to partisanship. And there's been a lot of talk the last several years about evangelicals voting in such high percentages for Republican candidates. And a lot has been made about the way evangelicals supported former President Trump. But really, the numbers weren't that different than the evangelicals supporting Mitt Romney or George W. Bush or others. So, do you think that? Evangelical Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians have been co-opted by the Republican Party?
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Um, You know, the evangelical church in America entered the political world circa 1980, as far as being a partisan, with stunning naivete. And they just immediately bought into the idea that God's purposes could only come about through the elephants. You know, if we can just get enough elephants in Congress, get an elephant in the White House, you know, get enough elephants governing the states, then, you know, the purposes of God can be brought to pass. I just find that just terribly naive. And I don't think it has helped us at all, because once the church becomes a Partisan of a particular political party, and no political party can bring about the kingdom of God because God has his own politics and they are brought about through Christ. I mean, when we say kingdom of God, we might as well say the politics of God, and there is no easy alignment with the kingdom of Christ and democratic or republican politics. But once a church or a movement within the wider church becomes a political partisan what they do is they become a tool to one side and an enemy to another and prophetic to none by the way i've never self identified as an evangelical that's never been a way that i've used to describe who i am as a follower of christ but so be it i may you know be regarded as belonging to that version or that expression of the christian faith when i'm critical of evangelicals in general being co-opted and becoming the de facto religious wing of the Republican Party. The culture wars are so embedded, so volatile that people hear that as me simply saying I'm a Democrat. I am not. If I'm a Democrat, the Democrats are in trouble because I am purposely dispassionate about partisan politics. I mean, I will tell you, because I just feel like just telling you the truth. I don't even know who's listening to this. It doesn't matter to me. I, for many, many years, in presidential politics, would vote for Bob Dylan. <laughs> I voted for Wendell Berry. One year I voted for Treebeard, even though I don't think he actually qualifies. But anyway, I think that would be awesome. He's old enough, for though, right? I mean, he's, he's over 35. Enough, and he likes trees. And my reason for doing so is, I mean, I would go to the polls and I would vote generally in local elections. But when it came to the presidential, I would write in, I think I wrote in my dad one year, so my reason for doing that is I did not want my vote for a presidential candidate to be a misconstrued as an authorization on my behalf for someone to wage war in the name of my vote. Because so much of the time we're voting for the, as we say, commander in chief. And so I just tried to stay out of that. So that wouldn't be a Democrat now, would it? I mean, voting for Treebeard. But here's where I'm going to be real honest. I will say that the last two elections, I voted against the Republican candidate. That involved casting my ballot for the one that had the best chance of defeating this Republican candidate, which would mean a Democrat. But still, you would be going down the wrong path to say, "Oh, see, I told you, BZ a Democrat." No, I was just so appalled by what Donald Trump was doing to the witness of the evangelical church that I just didn't want him to have any more power or presence. And so I was voting against the candidate. And so now I I'm just on a record. My larger point is I can look right in this camera and tell you that I am truthfully totally nonpartisan. I just have no allegiance to the elephants or the donkeys, all of my allegiance is pledged to the lamb. Now, that may sound like a little preacher line or something that I would put in my books, which I
1: have, but it's also true. I love it. I don't want to leave you hanging out there, so I don't mind sharing this. I've shared it here before, but the last two presidential elections, I did it a little different than you. I chose not to vote for either candidate. I voted for Kanye in the last one. (laughs) I think that wasn't too far after he had Jesus as King had come out and I was a big fan. So I voted Kanye just like maybe you voted for Treebeard or some of the others, Bob Dylan. So I understand kind of the process, at least a little bit of what you're thinking there. So you get where I'm going with this and maybe our listeners do too. You're a pastor trying to lead a congregation of a bunch of people who want to follow Jesus Mm -hmm. or who are at different points along the line of trying to follow Jesus, And you're trying to be a witness, a light for Jesus in St. Joseph, Missouri, a city that's Midwestern, working class, patriotic, conservative.
0: This is not San Francisco,
1: okay? No, no, no. (laughs) Your message would play really differently like your friend told you in Boston or San Francisco on the coast, or even in a big city like Kansas City that's just south of you a little ways. But that's not where you are. So you know the question, how in the world does a pastor like you actually function, actually lead a congregation of a bunch of Christians who probably voted for Trump?
0: I would say, you know, of course I don't know and I'm not interested in knowing, but I would say that our Congregation probably went 60% Trump, but that's just me
1: guessing. And you're out of sync with them to some extent. And not just the election, but even your view of wars. And you probably have people in your church who've served in wars, and their kids have served in wars, and they've lost parents dying in wars. We've always had military people in our church. So, how do you do it? How do I do it?
0: Well, first of all, you pastor for 40 years, (laughs) one congregation. And you know, over time you actually do build up some credibility. And I think the congregation understands, I mean, they really believe me when I say, what I really care about is Jesus and the kingdom. I heard a critic say the other day. I mean, it was secondhand. Someone told me said so they a critic of you. They said, BZ is a one trick pony. He only talks about Jesus and the kingdom of God, which I said, <laughs> one, that's two tricks. And two. Yes, <laughs> I'm here for it. That's pretty much, they nailed it. I think the congregation trusts me that my interest, my allegiance is sincerely towards only the kingdom of Christ. I don't know how we've done it exactly. I couldn't tell you necessarily. But what has occurred at Word of Life Church is the creation of what I would call a culture of kindness. I've never said this to our church. I've never talked about it thing about culture is culture is what you do instinctively. You know, you don't teach culture. You just sort of, you're formed by it. It's what makes you feel at home if you're in your own culture. And the culture at Word of Life Church is a culture of kindness. That is, you can hold any reasonable political position at Word of Life Church as long as you're not an ass about it, as long as you're not cruel and mean and demeaning to others about it. At Word of Life, you can be a Trumper or you can be a Bernie Sanders supporter. We have those. And they kind of are aware of one another, but they understand that what is out of bounds is to be demeaning and to be cruel and to be mocking uh, of those that don't share your political opinion. I know that's maybe fairly rare in our particular climate in America these days in 2022, but we've been able to pull
1: it off at Word of Life. Well, I really respect it, because in so many places, the churches are fracturing, and they're unable to pull it off. Yeah, and the
0: churches are becoming monoliths. They're just
1: yes. all blue or all red. Yeah, and I don't think that's right. So you've been able to do what we want to do, and that is put truth, Jesus, over tribe, so that you have people who can vote Republican, vote Democrat— be patriotic, be Christian non like yourself, or be in all these different positions, but let Jesus bring you together so that you're people inside the church who may not be friends outside the church, may not vote the same way, may not have the same socioeconomic background, but Jesus draws you together. And I think that's a cool story. And I don't think we should pass over it too quickly. I think it should be celebrated because there's a lot of people who could learn from it. One of the things I've noticed, I'm a pastor of a church too. And one of the things that I've noticed noticed is that the kinds of issues that people bring to me have changed over the last several years. Have you noticed that people's questions have changed from being more biblical to more cultural, less theological? You know, what do you think about baptism or what do you think about sign gifts or God's sovereignty and more things like, well, what do you think about Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement or those kinds of issues? Have you seen that shift? Yes and no yes,
0: I've seen it in the wider culture. I know that's an issue in churches. It just really doesn't show up that much at Word of Life because I think my congregation believes me when I say I'm not here to serve a political interest. I am not covertly smuggling in something to aid one side or the other, Democrats, Republicans, progressives, Conservatives. And so I think they just know that that isn't going to work with me, that I'm not going to talk about that as a partisan. I did post a picture of me wearing a Black Lives Matter t shirt not long after the death of George Floyd on Instagram, and it irritated some people. And they came to me in the church, and I said, Well, you can talk to me. But, and then I named about five or six of our African American members i said they actually told me how much it encouraged them and how happy it made them how comforting it was so you go talk to them first and after you've had a conversation with them come back and talk to me did they do it no i don't know i don't know if they did they didn't they didn't ever come to talk to me about
1: it again so who knows but people aren't trying to get you to say hey the christian position aligns with one uh, they they their- just know i'm not going to do that because
0: i have been death on christians reaching for the political ring of power all the time i'm I'm going lord of the rings on you here all the time telling themselves i'll use it for good and yet we know the story from the lord of the rings that once you try to possess and use the ring of power it always corrupts you and so here's the thing i'm going to zero in on something somewhere along the way about 40 years ago the American evangelical church really thought that it was its task to change the world. And it's been a disaster. When you think that your task is to change the world, then the seduction of the ring of power, or let's say Caesar's sword, that is the means of political coercion becomes almost irresistible and it will corrupt the faith. I mean, contrary to what I know is such popular rhetoric, the church is not called to change the world. It's called to be the world as already transformed by Christ. It is enough for us to be a faithful presence of the kingdom of Christ already present in the world. We don't have to change the world, the world can be attracted to us if we are beautiful enough. If our lives as followers of Christ are winsome enough, then people say, I want to belong to that. I'm not interested in trying to change the world. That's not my job. And if I get it in my head that it is my job to change the world, then the seduction to the most immediate means of change, which is political power, becomes almost irresistible. And I mean, just open your eyes and look around. We have seen Christian leaders that once they begin to pursue politics, that's who they truly serve. So let's say it this way. Here's the problem with the Christian right and the Christian left. Christian gets reduced to adjective duty. What really matters is the all-important right or left noun. I mean, look, both progressives and conservatives can try to attract Jesus or drag in Jesus as a pitch man for their political position but that is an abuse. Jesus is not going to endorse Republicans or Democrats because quite frankly Jesus is Lord. <laughs> He's not running for office and God isn't raising up, you know, Donald Trump or Barack Obama or whoever you want to name. What God has raised up is Jesus Christ from the dead. And Jesus is the Savior of the world, and if the world's going to be saved, that's Jesus' job to save it. Our job as the baptized is simply to belong to that part of the world already confessing that Jesus is Lord and living uncoercively under his lordship. So I say it this way, the kingdom of Christ—I'm getting all wound up here, Keith—the kingdom of Christ is without coercion. This is why I want people to hear, the kingdom of Christ is without coercion, political or otherwise, we persuade by love, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, if need be martyrdom, but never by force. I mean, the church just is not present in the world to force people to live a certain way or to adopt a particular politics. That is not our role. We are witnesses. We are martyrs. We are those that just live lives that are to be the sweet fragrance of Christ that can attract those that are looking for something other because that's what the kingdom of God is. It is an alternative society to the world as it is,
1: be it left, right, progressive, conservative, Democrat, Republican, elephant's donkeys. Okay, there's so much to unpack there. And I appreciate your passion. And I think in all your books, you have a great writing style. I love reading them because you're always interesting. You say things in a provocative way that gets your attention so I'm on the same page with you on this idea that Jesus doesn't want to run for president. That would be a demotion to him, right? He's not interested in a four-year term. He's the king of the universe and he's there for eternity. So 100% with you on that. And if I hear you right, you're not saying, hey, the church isn't about to change the world or shouldn't be trying to change the world because that's God's job. You probably agree with that. But I think what you're saying more is that instead of trying to change the world and therefore grasping at power, the ring of power, Instead, what we do is faithfully live out our lives in a community shaped probably by the Sermon on the Mount, shaped by the Beatitudes, shaped by a love for enemy and neighbor, and allow God to draw people to us, to draw people to him, to draw people into this magnetic community. And and I'm I'm down with all that. I think all that's great. But when you start talking about, hey, Christians should just be over here and loving Jesus and following Jesus... The thing I can't figure out for myself, so I'm just going to ask you, maybe you've got it figured out, is where does justice come into play? Because I think as Christians, when I read the Old Testament prophets, we need to care about justice. We need to care about the weak and the vulnerable. And Jesus cared about the lepers, and he cared about those in prison. And the Old Testament prophets call us to care about economic justice and, of course, racial justice. And so are we going to ignore those issues? Yeah, I'm not talking about ignoring them. And I'm not advocating for what is called quietism. But let me just finish one thing, because I want to get your opinion on it. Once we start going down that road of working for justice, then unfortunately, we get labeled Republican, Democrat, conservative, progressive. Whether it's for pro-life or pro-racial justice or, you know, what all those are, we start getting labeled. So are you for sitting it out? You said, no, you're not for quietism or sitting it out. I'm for being a prophetic witness. I personally will not be involved in
0: any kind of partisanship and the political process itself. I'll be a witness. I will, in the name of Christ, in the light of Christ, ethics formed by the revelation of Christ, will talk about what I believe is faithful and what is true and what is just, but I'm just not interested in pursuing a political means of bringing this to pass. Others may. I simply won't do that. I mean, I've been invited to the national prayer breakfast for, 30 years. I would never go. Okay, I'm going to push on that. Stay as far away from that as I can. Breakfast with Caesar strikes me as a bad idea every time. And one of the reasons is I don't trust myself. You have to understand, Frodo,
1: I would use the ring out of a motive to do good, but I know what it would do to me. Right. If he can corrupt Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, I'm sure you too and me too. So I'm with you, but let's go back to the civil rights movement and Dr. King and others are marching and it's a justice issue, but they're going to talk to Lyndon Johnson and they're trying to pass legislation that became the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of the late 60s. Are you telling me that could we take you and put you back at that time, you fully formed now and all your beliefs, you would say, I can't be a part of those things because those are politics and I stay out of politics. I could see myself marching.
0: I could see myself wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt because I do and I have. Aren't those political? Or no? Do you see a difference? I don't see it as political. I understand that others see it as political. And so that's a little bit different there. What I'm really stressing, though, is I personally, as a pastor, never want to be seen as a tool. Yeah, because neither side is going to, in my mind, represent what would embody faithfulness to Christ. But... Issues, social issues. I've been pretty outspoken on some immigration things and gun violence. I mean, I spoke at a Moms Demand Action rally at our city hall maybe two summers ago, something like that. But always in the name of Christ. And if others say, okay, well, that just seems like a Democrat to me, well, that's on them. That's not my base. That's not where I'm coming from. That's not what I'm attempting to do. So again, I understand that this is tricky. I think political theology is a razor's edge. It's, it's that thin. And I never feel like I get it right, but I keep trying. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I don't feel that way either. But I think political theology is the most difficult thing to get right because I'm always trying to navigate those tricky waters of not being seduced into quietism and yet not becoming a political partisan.
1: So let's go back a little bit, because when I read your story, I've read it a couple of times, you once were what today would make you uncomfortable. In other words, what we're hearing now is not where you were.
0: If somebody's listening to this, and thinks, oh, BZ's
1: always been just kind of a left of center dude. No. You changed over the years. You grew up in the area you live in now. Your dad was a judge. You respected him a lot. You were what you now are uncomfortable with. So tell us, how did you change? What part of your life was that in? And what led to that change?
0: It was fairly dramatic. And it happened in for a lot of things. I mean, I look back on my life and I think everything happened in 2004 as far as just a spiritual crisis, resolution, breakthrough happened in that year. And I began to see the kingdom of Christ as something real. And I began to understand that America was just the latest in a long line of empires. Now, I'm using the word empire as a technical word, not as a pejorative. What I mean by empire, Empires are rich, powerful nations who believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their own agenda. God loves nations. I read my Bible. I see God loves the diversity, the language, culture, ethnicity of nations. What God is opposed to consistently, Genesis to Revelation, is empire. That is, these arrogant superpowers that think they have a right to rule the world. They have a manifest destiny, to shape history, because what empires claim for themselves, God has promised to his son, Jesus. So there was this crucial moment. I don't tell this in Postcards from Babylon, although this story shows up in the book uh, Farewell to Mars, I believe. It was 2004. Bush was running for re-election. Cheney was his vice president. There was a rally in St. Joseph. They asked me to offer the invocation at a rally that Cheney was going to be at. I didn't immediately say yes, but eventually I did say yes. And man, that was a mistake. And once I got there, I knew it was a mistake and I knew I was just being used as a tool. I was backstage, I meet Dick Cheney, whatever, then I'm brought out, you know, trotted out. I mean, I understood what was happening. Okay, I'm here as the pastor of the largest church in the city to tacitly indicate that God is on the side of the Republican Party. This was 18 years ago, and I was just waking up to what was happening. And it came time for me to pray. And I had a prayer written out. I went to the podium, didn't pray that prayer, just kind of bowed my head. I was silent for a while. I know they were thinking, come on, Zon, get on with it. (laughs) And I was praying silently, saying, Lord, forgive me for even being here. I'll never do this again. And then I prayed a very innocuous sort of vague prayer and literally walked off the stage. I wasn't supposed to do that. I just walked out of the building, got in my car, and left and thought, I am never going to do that again. I'm just going to stay as far away as that I can. Now, you know, I've written books, and I talk about this now, and I have a very established position, more or less, about the role of the church. But this was 18 years ago. And remember, I'm just a Jesus-free, charismatic. I encountered Christ as a teenager, leading the church, pastoring in church by the time I'm 22. And the Jesus movement, charismatic movement, was really Completely apolitical. It began to change in the 1980s with Jerry Falwell, with Pat Robertson and that bunch. And I just sort of went along for the ride until in midlife I woke up. And thought, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be faithful to my Lord. I'm going to be a witness for Christ. I'm not going to be reduced, you know, to just a religious consultant for a political party.
1: When you made those changes, when you walked off that stage, and I think that, if I hear you right, that's emblematic of a larger shift. Yeah, it was
0: literal and metaphoric at the same time.
1: Right. It signifies some bigger transitions in your thinking, your theology, your heart, the whole Mm -hmm. thing. But when you walked off that stage and made these changes, did it cost you some friends? Did it cost you at church? What were the costs?
0: It cost me a thousand people.
1: Wow. Immediately? Just
0: walked out or? No. Over a period of several years, that incident was probably not perceived as significant as it was for me. But the big change cost you? It was as I, in in my sermons, and my preaching, teaching, leading, as I began to challenge the idea that there was some sort of easy, comfortable relationship between the interests of the kingdom of Christ and the American agenda. And as I began to be critical of the religious right and of waging war as being incompatible with Christian ethics, there were other changes I was making during that time, but I could have brought people along. That was the big issue. I'm sure glad that we'd made those moves in 2004, 5, 6, 7. It seemed very hard then. And I thought, I'm doing this at the worst time. Well, today it's amplified tenfold. And so I really have sympathy, deep compassion for the pastor who is trying to make the kinds of changes today that I began making 18 years ago. Because it's just so much more toxic, angry,
1: polarized, volatile. When you lost those thousand people, just... Curious, did others come back? Did they come back or others come back? Or was this a permanent change in the structure of the church?
0: Very few came back, hardly any. You've already alluded. I'm in a town of 70 some thousand people, is the official population. A thousand is a lot of people. (laughs) Well, what it means is if you go anywhere, you see them. Absolutely. You go to the grocery store, you see them. And these were not nameless masses. These were your friends. These are people that I had maybe led to the Lord, baptized, married. Baptized their kids, married their kids, and they were leaving saying, you know, Brian's backslidden, which if anything, I felt like I front slid. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I was being more faithful to Christ than ever, but it was costing me. Here is though the phenomenon that you might find interesting. I was late forties into my fifties when this was happening. We had the phenomenon of people my age or maybe a little older leaving and their adult children staying saying, Mom and Dad, you can leave if you want, but we're not leaving because it's a church like this, actually, that is
1: keeping us in the faith. Because some of this is generational, right? I mean, it's not completely generational, but some is. I know it's been talked about, but the alignment
0: of American evangelicals, white evangelicals, older white evangelicals, with the Republican Party as manifest in Donald Trump has led to a mass exodus of people under 40, people in their 30s, people in their 20s. They are repulsed by it, and rightly so. They want to have nothing to do with it. So you think of Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham, maybe the most famous evangelist in American history. And then Franklin, his son, who would want to be known as an evangelist for Christ. And yet among a younger generation, he would be among the most influential in moving people out of the church and out of Christianity. That kind of posture of just being an apologist for Donald Trump drives younger people, not only out of the church, but sometimes very often,
1: right out of Christian faith. Franklin Graham is a great example because he seems like a mixed bag. In other words, he has been very partisan and loyal to former President Trump. At the same time, he leads an organization that has made real differences overseas in the vulnerable and the poor. We've worked with him. You know, we're a lot of church. We've done a lot with Samaritan's Purse over the years. We have too. And, and so it shows that everybody's kind of a mixed bag and nobody's all bad or all good. And I'm wondering if your history, your personal history of once being what you are now uncomfortable with gives you empathy for people who are where you are, or even like somebody like Franklin Graham.
0: Yes. The average Person in the pew just trying to make it through life and trying to follow Jesus. I'm not interested in trying to, in any way, reprove them, rebuke them for getting their Christian faith tangled up with Republican politics. That being said, with leaders, again, I'm going to give you a Lord of the Rings line a wizard should know better. (laughs) And leaders, on the other hand, they should know better. And so, my gentleness towards the sheep is not the same as towards the shepherds. And I can be fairly harsh with those who I think are simply making a bid for power and betraying fidelity to Christ for the sake of being close to the halls of power. I think that's reprehensible.
1: So you mentioned earlier how older Americans, I think it's the way you said it, have more loyalty to political tribes. In your area, that happens to be republicanism. I'm Curious because you also talked about the empire and how the empire often sets themselves up as being opposed to God because the empire wants the same thing that King Jesus does. I think it's easier to, if you went back to Babylon, the empire, which the book of Daniel and Ezekiel partly written in this time, it would be easier to follow christ in my mind back then i mean i know i'm being anachronistic and imposing christian values back then because babylon was completely opposed to the things of god
0: it was overtly pagan
1: where it has through civil religion or genuine religion been closer to God and has more Christian motifs, theology woven through it. I'm not saying that America was a Christian nation or anything like that. It seems like we don't expect Babylon to be friendly to faith, but we do kind of expect our country because it once was friendlier to faith. So do you find nostalgia kind of hurts Christians in this area, like longing for some day in the past that Christianity was more respected? Longing for a mythical past. This is just
0: what we've inherited from the whole Constantinian catastrophe
1: that occurred, what, 16 centuries ago? Can you kind of explain a little bit of who Constantine is?
0: Okay, so Constantine is the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. And the legend, and I regard it as little more than that, Eusebius tells us this story. He says the story is like this. You have these two generals that are involved in a civil war contending for the imperial purple. And there's a definitive battle that's about to break out, the battle for the Milvian Bridge. I think that was maybe 312. And as the legend goes, Constantine has a vision. Understand, Constantine had a Christian mother, Helena who I think was a genuine Christian, and he had a pagan father who was a general. He always lived in that tension between his peaceable Christian mother and his pagan general father. But the legend goes that he saw a vision of a cross in the heavens with these words, in this sign, you shall conquer. Of course, conquer being a euphemism for kill. And so the Christian symbol of the cross was affixed to the weapons of war of Constantine's army, and they prevail in the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And in short order, he becomes emperor, and then he begins to give favored status to Christianity and eventually, with the Edict of Milan, puts it on track to become the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now. That was a mistake. The church should have never gone along with that, but it was an inevitable mistake. I really don't know how in the early 4th century, the church could have seen this for what it was. I just think the church had to make that mistake. But having made the mistake, it doesn't
1: have to continue to make it now 16 centuries later. The mistake is joining church power and political power, state power, right?
0: See, early Christians were not persecuted for what we think of as religious reasons. The Roman Empire had more or less religious freedom. They kind of had to offer that or it would have been ungovernable. What they didn't allow was for any rival to the Roman Emperor. So we say Jesus is Lord today, you know, it's a little slogan. It sounds kind of pious and all of that. You have to understand how provocative that was. Lord was an actual imperial title granted to the emperor by the Roman Senate. And so Caesar is Lord was official imperial law, I guess. You could say it that way. And so when Christians are saying Jesus is Lord, they are also saying by implication Caesar is not. And this is viewed as very dangerous, very subversive, and this is why periodically the Christians were persecuted for what would be understood more as political reasons than religious reasons. Well, but now you have a Christian emperor, a so-called Christian emperor. And now we have the conflation of the kingdom of Christ and the Roman empire. And so what do you do with Jesus? You're gonna say he's Lord, but can he really be Lord? Because now we have Caesar, we have a Christian emperor. So in effect, Jesus gets demoted to the secretary of afterlife affairs. (laughs) Jesus' job is to get us into heaven when we die. In the meantime, we will let Caesar run the world. And not only will we let Caesar run the world, we will be there as a chaplain to endorse him and bless him and bless his wars. So the problem I see in America presently with Christian nationalism, it's horrific, but it ain't nothing new. The Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, I'm naming empires that have been a seduction for the church. Roman Empire. Byzantine empire, all European empires, whether we're talking about Spain or England or Portugal, whoever you
1: want to name. And when they say seduced the church, what is it that they're offering the church that the church has a hard time resist? Is it the ring of power? Proximity to power, You know,
0: photo op in the White House, to be made to feel significant. And it has a lot to do with the waging of war. It's not hard to get young men to go to war. That's not hard. That's actually pretty easy. When you go to war, you need to convince mom and dad that if Johnny comes home in a flag-draped casket, he has been on God's side and that he is righteous in this war. And so what the empire needs the church to do is to act as a chaplain and to ensure everybody that God is on our side. Gut mit uns, Nazi Germany was very religious, and it employed Christian language and iconography to do this. And so right there on their belt buckles, you know, God with us. From our vantage point of 80 years later, we look on the rise of Nazi Germany, and we know that it ends in death camps. We know it ends in Auschwitz. But look, the 18-year-old, or just the common Lutheran in Berlin, they are being told by church leaders— by Protestant church leaders, evangelical Germans, that God is raising up Hitler and God is on our side and God is committed to making Germany great again. And that's how bad that thing can go. That's how awful it can become. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen in the United States. I'm not saying that's not what's going to happen. I'm just saying that once we get seduced toward that, all bets are off as to when we're going to find the brakes to pull away from atrocities. So let me throw in this real quick. When I say America, America is so big, so huge, such a behemoth, that when I use the word America, I'm talking about four things simultaneously. America is a nation, a culture, an empire, a religion. Yeah, that's clear, right? As a nation, I mean it's 50 states and all of that sort of thing. And it's also a culture, So I traveled the world. I've been in 50 countries, but I don't know that I've ever completely been out of America because everywhere I go, America is there in some way culturally. So as a nation and as a culture, America is a mixed bag. And yet there is much that is admirable. There is much that is inspirational. There is much that is worthy of legitimate celebration. Okay. Then you have America as empire. You've already heard what I think about that. It becomes a rival to the kingdom of Christ. It's hubris that an empire is not content to be a nation among others. It has to be number one, the best, the greatest, all of that. And then America as a religion. That's what our hearers, viewers may think of as the most provocative statement. But is it really controversial? I mean, America is a religion complete with all of the marks of religion, with founding myths, with sacred documents, founding fathers, holy days. Holy ground, holy places, liturgical gestures. And what has happened is people have thought that there is a nice, easy relationship between the agenda of America and the cause of Christ, and we can just blend them all, but it is a betrayal. And this is evidenced by the fact that every time I drive past a church that decides they want to have a couple of flags out there, but they only got one flag pole. So they've got the American flag, and they've got the so-called Christian flag, which doesn't belong to historic Christian iconography. That already is clearly a conflation of Christian symbol and American symbolism. But be that as it may, we'll take it as it's supposed to be, that it is a representation of Christian faith. How are they always, without exception, arranged? The American flag is on top. And in the subordinate position is the Christian flag. And flags are purely simple. They serve no utilitarian purpose. And so what is the message? The message is that our first allegiance is to America and our second allegiance is to Christ. (laughs) I mean, it's a moment of unintended truth telling on the church lawn. And people say, oh, it doesn't mean that. I say, well, then just reverse them and see what happens. Just reverse them. See what happens. And I had a pastor tell me, he said, well, you can't do that. That's illegal. I said, no, it's not. And so what if it was? Are you going to seek first the kingdom of God? Or are you going to seek first the kingdom of America? Sometimes you have to make some choices.
1: You set me up to ask you about this time that you went into a private Christian school to pray on the National Day of Prayer. You've already expressed your reservations about participating in the National Day of Prayer, but the way you tell the story, you thought, you know, it's just easier to do it. And we've all been there where we get ourselves in a situation where we'd rather not be in. But you show up to this private Christian school to pray on the National Day of Prayer. Can you tell us what you experienced that day? All of the students, high school students, a couple hundred, are in the
0: gymnasium. I'm there standing next to the superintendent. The superintendent kind of knows where I'm coming from. But nevertheless, I've been invited to do some things on prayer. And they decide, okay, it's the National Day of Prayer. We'll have two liturgical acts. First, we'll say the Pledge of Allegiance. Following that, we will recite the Lord's Prayer. Well, the Pledge of Allegiance comes off without a hitch. Everybody knows it. And they put their hand over their heart, and they recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Then comes the Lord's Prayer, because it's an the National Day of Prayer. And this is a private Christian school. This is an evangelical private Christian school. This is not a public school. This is a Christian school. So how did the Lord's Prayer go? It was a disaster. They don't know it. And so what they said was, okay, so they sent out a student. They give a student a Bible. They find it, you know, it's in Matthew 6. And he's going to read part of it, and then they're going to repeat after him. And it was just so clunky, and it didn't work because it's kind of evangelical. So they're not really practitioners of liturgy per se, at least Christian liturgy. And that's what I said. I said, it's not that you guys don't really believe in liturgy. It's you don't believe in Christian liturgy. Your American liturgy, you have down perfect. Your Christian liturgy seems to be foreign to these students.
1: What was his reaction?
0: kind of hang his head and go, yeah, you might have a point. He didn't think it was probably funny as you and I do right now. I didn't think it was funny at the time. I tell it in such a way that it seems a little funny now.
1: No, I understand. I mean, you're trying to make the broader point you were making earlier that somehow we've put the American flag or the Pledge of Allegiance over the Christian flag, the Lord's Prayer, that we've inverted our values and highlighted and emphasized our national kingdom as opposed to our allegiance in the Christian kingdom. There's just a couple more things I want to discuss with you because I really want you to share about your Dear John letter. You wrote it on July 4th, 2017. And Dear John letter, of course, kind of being a metaphor for breaking up or something like that. I want you to describe it, walk us through it. Who did you share it with? What was their reaction? But start with what the point of the Dear John letter was.
0: I just i am always troubled as I see religious devotion by Christians given to America. And so because I'm rather fearless when I feel like I need to be, I simply wrote this and posted it as a blog. I have to tell you, it caused me no trouble with my church, but I think it was fairly well written. You don't have to buy my book to find this. If you just Google Zond, letter to America, whatever, you'll find it.
1: So you just posted. I thought maybe you'd read it to your church. I wasn't sure, but it sounds like by the time you posted it, probably everybody that you cared about already knew where you stood.
0: The letter is respectful. And I want to say, I love America. I remember that I say early in the letter, I say, I love you, America, but not like that. (laughs) I don't know if that's the name of the blog post, but that line's in there. That I do love America, but not like I love Jesus not like I love the kingdom of God. I mean, it's my home. And as I said legitimately, there's much about American nation and culture that is worthy of admiration and celebration. And so, you know, it's the nation that gave us baseball, blues, Bob Dylan. America's contribution to arts and science is significant and good. And I celebrate that. But there are
1: other aspects that trouble me. Lately, I've seen evangelical Christians say about some of what they consider kind of the elite authors who identify as Christians, people who maybe write for big magazines like The Atlantic or appear on the op-ed page of The New York Times. And, and what they say is that sometimes these people, and they may even mean people like you, I'm not sure, that they coddle left and punch right. In other words, to the sins of the left— and by here I mean progressive left, democratic left, they're more understanding, they're more gracious, they bend over backwards to give people the benefit of the doubt, they wanna make room, they coddle, as their language, coddle left, but critique, punch, point out the faults, are harder on, the sins of the right. Do you think that would be a fair critique of you? I think there is something to that. Do you coddle left, punch right?
0: Is that due to your location? Other people will have to decide whether I do that. But here's what I will say. I tend to think that you take a prophetic stance among your own people. One of the reasons Jesus was particularly harsh with the Pharisees is that Jesus was most closely aligned with the Pharisees. Jesus did not belong to the Sadducees, certainly not the Essenes, certainly not the Zealots. I think that Nazareth and Jesus' upbringing was fairly close to the Pharisee movement. And so if I'm more critical of the right than the left, it's probably because these are the people that I know and have done life with and that I think might listen to me. Although my latest book, When Everything's on Fire, if anything, in fact, I've not said this too much publicly, but I know it's true, that I would say most of my books was me talking, whether it's, you know, you can decide whether I'm punching or just talking, talking to those to the right of me. The latest book is the opposite of that. It's talking maybe maybe to those that are to the left of me and are about ready to leave Christian faith. And I say, well, before you do, let's have this conversation. So I think there is some truth to that. i tell you, Postcards from Babylon is me talking to my compatriots from the 1970s Jesus movement. We were radical. We're following Jesus. We're apolitical. We are tacitly anti-war, and I'm seeing my friends that I've known for 40 years turn into MAGA flag red hat Trump zealots. And I'm just saying we didn't start off as Jesus freaks following our Lord to end up like that. And so if I am punching, first of all, I don't think I'm punching. I think I'm trying to be
1: prophetically critical, but I'm talking to my own people. Yeah, I understand. And I think your comparison of Jesus being hard on the Pharisees because he was trying to make distinctions between himself and them being so closely aligned with them, probably in the public's eye. I think that fits and makes sense. You are located in a particular area and that's who you primarily do ministry with. And of course, because of the internet and publishing and all that, your voice is heard out of that context.
0: I have received plenty of criticism from the progressive wing. If you think I'm a progressive Christian, just ask the progressive Christians. Is BZ progressive? And they'll they'll just cuss you out.
1: <laughs> so a lot of pastors have gotten discouraged in this time where they're trying to faithfully lead a church, regardless of their own political views or where they are theologically. They are trying. The vast majority of pastors are trying to be as faithful as they can to lead a church. Now, here we have the culture wars, we have the political wars, we have COVID, church finances, people leaving, people who they had baptized or officiated their weddings are turning on them, they've lost friends. A lot of people are leaving. A lot of pastors are leaving. A lot of pastors wish they could leave, but they probably can't afford to leave. You seem to be thriving. Why haven't you left? I talk to these pastors every day. So you're talking to them. What are they saying? Anything interesting that would be good for us to know? And why haven't you left? Why are you still going strong? If I was going to
0: leave, it would have been 15 years ago. That was a very difficult time. It was very painful, very stressful, but we made it. I always say we because my wife, Perry, we really lead this church together and have a whole team of people. But I mean, Perry and I were the founders. So I always say we, because it's just the way it feels. If we were going to leave, we would have done it 15 years ago. But we really, as much as that might have been a delightful fantasy, I don't want any pastor to mishear this, but we just couldn't. And we've always said, Perry and I, we have three sons, you know, adult. They're all grown up now. We always said we had three sons and one daughter, and the daughter was the church. And we really felt that way. And I was able to lead Word of Life into a new place. But let's keep this in mind. I was the founding pastor of a non-denominational church. And the structure of the church was such that the governing board were other pastors from around the country that provide oversight and can intervene if need be, which means I had the chance, the opportunity to try to bring Word of Life into a new place. I wasn't going to be fired. I wasn't going to have a bishop come in and yank me out. Now, I could have just wrecked the whole thing but at least I had a chance to try. And so I did try and succeeded more or less. I mean, lost a lot of people along the way, but not every pastor has that setup. That's exactly right. That's what I tell them all the time. You have to be realistic about whether you even have a chance to do this, whether you want to or not. I completely understand pastors being depressed and anxious and maybe looking for a way out, but they're not quite sure because this is what they've given their life to. This is what they know how to do. You know, they didn't train to become a lawyer or whatever. They're trained to be a pastor And it's becoming almost impossible. I would not hit these issues head on by name, but you can address them elliptically by do a series out of Daniel, you know, preach out of first Peter or something. And you don't bring a direct criticism of the American empire. You draw the dots and maybe some people say, I think America is kind of like
1: Babylon.
0: (laughs) It's kind of like the Roman
1: empire,
0: kind of. And either they see it or they don't. I mean, I say this, I think, in many different ways in postcards from Babylon, but what I'm saying is I think one of the greatest needs theologically in the American evangelical church is to understand that America is a kind of biblical Babylon and not a kind of biblical Israel. Now, don't get up and just say that. You know, take weeks, take months, take a year or two to communicate that indirectly, if you want, and then see what happens. But I am not about to condemn any pastor for not just, you know, charging in there and saying, you know, this civil religion is idolatrous. It is, but what's the point of just blowing the whole thing up? Let's try to bring people along wisely and gently. That's what we should be attempting to do. We have had, I can count them if I sat down and worked at it long enough, we've had four or five pastors from around the country leave the ministry and moved to St. Joseph, and St. Joseph is not like a destination that people pick to go live their lives, and yet they have moved here because of Word of Life, because I thought, okay, here's a congregation we can be a part of, feel like we can trust, feel like we can find a healing here, and so I'm glad that we've been able to do that, but I'm sad that that kind of thing needs to be done so much in our current environment.
1: Well, I respect your longevity as a pastor in one location, in one church, loving the people, serving the people. We do love the people. I know you do. And if you read your books, you pick that up, but you're talking to you even more so. So we've talked a lot about Postcards from Babylon. We also have referred to Farewell to Mars, which is a book on nonviolence, war. We alluded to that a little bit earlier. Both those books, I think, are excellent. If people were going to pick up one other book of yours. so of the ones that you either have out or you said one will be released before too long. Is there another book that people might want to get introduced? I'm going to mention two real quick. Go for it.
0: The latest book is when everything's on fire and it's really me talking to the phenomenon that is called deconstruction, not my favorite term, but I understand the reality of it. I'm proud of that book. Probably the most popular book I've written is sinners in the hands of a loving God.
1: Okay. So those are a couple of books. And you're active on Twitter. I know that. And so people can follow you there. What's your handle there?
0: Brian Zond. It's my name. You know, if you want to find my stuff, just Google Brian Zond and you'll find it because it's a very unique name. You'll also find plenty of critics on YouTube that for some reason can go hours on end about how I'm a heretic,
1: (laughs) but I'm not. Z-A-H-N-D. That's how you spell it. Zond and Brian with an I. So, Brian, would you pray for the faithfulness of the church as we finish? Would you just pray that we would be faithful to Jesus?
0: Oh, Lord, you know this is my heart. This is my cry. Lord, that your church would pledge allegiance to Christ alone. Lord, it's a difficult time, it's a volatile time. Lord, I pray that we could once again begin to enact the beauty of Christ in our land, that we would be attractive and not forceful, not coercive, but but attractive. Lord, I ask that you would help pastors to navigate this difficult time to lead their churches well, to lead their church away from any kind of imperial idolatry and back towards radical faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Oh God, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. May you come and may may the bride once again be pure and full of fidelity toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.
1: Amen. Thanks so much for being with us, Brian. I really appreciate your time.